I used to have massive long dreams as a kid. And he used to write stories about them and illustrate them. And I still I still remember a lot of them today, actually. I started off doing them just on the bus. And it was just sort of weird vignettes about, like, legions of clowns sort of toiling to mill confetti and things like that. I'm just really relieved he enjoyed it because... I did get a feeling of massive guilt towards the end that I'd basically hijacked a man's life for my own <laughs> narcissistic glee. Something about aquatic animals behind glass utterly fascinates me. A lot of my earliest memories, actually, are of animals in zoos and in uh, fish and aquariums. Make no secret, I actually have recurring nightmares about aquariums that have gone wrong. It really distresses me. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Frog Croakley. Uh, hello. hello. It's strange to address someone as their, as their Twitter handle knowing that that's not their real name, but that's the construct of this, of today's episode, I guess. It's similar to my name, though, so I mean, the, you know, the rough cadence is the same. <laughs> there's, a, there's a clue. And the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? I know you because I either started following you or you started following me on Twitter a couple of years ago, and then I think we met at a gig or I went to Spark or something like that, but it was something to do with the internet and then live comedy stroke performance. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I didn't really meet you, though, till this year, I think. Yeah, it would have been, would yeah. have been. I mean, I'm, like, I, I, knew you, I knew you by the internet knowing somebody, but then your, your Twitter feed is very engaging, but it's not necessarily particularly, like, like it's very funny, but it's not necessarily revealing who you are, necessarily. It's definitely not much about me, no. <laughs> Did sort of bleed into real life this year a little bit. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah, no, it's funny, isn't it? It's hard to pinpoint when you stopped knowing someone online and started knowing them in real life. But I think, yeah, it must have been probably this calendar year. I mean, I, I, I remember the night well, and it was the night of Daniel Barker's birthday. Well, there we go, yes. That's, uh, that's inevitably <laughs> a starting point for the conversation. And, I mean, you know, you could have said that pretty much any day for quite a long time was uh, Daniel Barker's birthday. 75 days, yeah. For listeners who have no idea what we're talking about now, I'll try and fill them in a little bit. Good luck. Daniel Barker has been a guest on the show, so you can listen back to his episode to get to know who he is, but that was well before his birthday started that we recorded <laughs> that, that episode. One day, Daniel Barker tweeted uh, that uh, n- no one was paying attention to his birthday. I mean, that's not the exact quote. You probably know the exact quote. Uh, hilariously, I don't. You don't. It was something along the lines of... The tweet that launched a thousand tweets and you don't remember it. I know. Um, saying that all anyone should be doing is wishing me a happy birthday. That was the sentiment, at least. Right, that was the right, sentiment. Right, right. And, yeah, and so you decided to, to take him at his word, I guess. Yeah, I like Daniel. Um <laughs> Uh, I had to reassure him of this a few times in the first couple of weeks. He's a lovely chap, and for a man who's incredibly sort of gentle and mild, the tweet seemed weirdly dictatorial. So to cut a long story short, I I suppose I started creating a sort of a horrible mirror world uh, where indeed everyone everywhere was devoted to wishing Daniel a happy birthday. And I played that out in real time for 
what became a frightening number of weeks. Right, and it was a story basically told in tweets that began as trolling in, to a certain extent, like like in the most mild sense of the word trolling. Yeah, like, that's that's a know, fair fair claim. You were you were you were deliberately trying to wind him up, and then it became something that was just it became more than anything to do with him. And it was very interesting to watch, as many of us did on Twitter. And it became, I guess it kind of went a bit viral, right? I mean, well, bacterial but, at least. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, BuzzFeed got interested, as they do when there's content that they can use to make money. Um, <laughs> and, and so, yeah, and it became like a, a meme, I guess. Other people joined in. There was artwork. There were propaganda posters. Right. It would have stopped being funny really quickly if it hadn't have been a bit of a team effort. And it would have been stopped being funny even quicker if Daniel had seen it as any sort of harassment. But after a week or so, he seemed to get that this was a thing that was going to go on for a while and really started playing the part. So it became something we both sort of look forward to every day, or at the very least, each day wouldn't seem normal without it. So I guess you could call it Stockholm Syndrome on on his part, but he, he he was extremely game in the way he dealt with it. Right, and he, and you didn't just sort of like stick around mildly, sort of like mocking him. You you created a kind of entire world. Well, yeah, that, I mean, that was it. It was never beyond the fact that he had tweeted about people not celebrating his birthday. It never bore any relation to the actual personality of Daniel Barker. Well, would that made it funnier, as particularly for people who knew Daniel, that was even funnier to know that he isn't a, dict- a dictator in any real sense, and you were casting him in that. And that was, I mean, that's what made the... the uh, but it, but it was a, it was a lot of work. Even though it was just a thing you were doing on Twitter, it was a lot of time to put into. You must have like planned the tweets, and did you, did you think of the narrative in advance, or I mean, what did, you, how did you do that? I started off doing them just on the bus, and it was just sort of weird vignettes about like legions of clowns sort of toiling to mill confetti and things like that. But then it, it sort of did develop a sort of a story and. It became really weird because I was having to plan it out, as you say, in advance, sort of like a week ahead. As I was trying to up the ante every day, there was a sense of trying to work out what I could do next. I think, right, okay, in about ten days, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn this into a sci-fi because that's uh, that's about the only only way I can up the gear on it. I mean, in the end, I don't know. You'd have to do the maths. We're about seventy-five days with about sort of ten tweets a day. It was quite a lot of words in the end. Yeah. Um, Yes, it was one of the reasons me and Daniel both were massively relieved when it was all over. I remember about three weeks or so before the end, we had dinner together here, actually. A very similar meal to the one we're eating, actually, because it's one of the easiest things I know to cook. He said, basically, you've got me doing a live-action roleplay of my own fictionalised life. And we both sort of burst into... (laughs) somewhere between laughter and tears right. uh, and wondered how we were going to end it but it was um yeah it, it, it was a bit of a labor well it did become live action and that's how we met yeah well, of so course. i mean it became to the point where i guess it made sense you had to throw an actual birthday party but that birthday party had all of this mythology around it i mean we've already mentioned clowns like that's just one of many factions and you had a, a, a revolutionary group against Daniel Barker's birthday. You know, there was a lot of... Excellent... And the seriously injured leopards. Right, there you go. I mean, yeah, right. I mean, when people turned up, it was basically like a cosplay thing. People came to that party dressed up as parts within it. There was a lot of people dressed as le- leopards. There was a lot of, like, reptile-type stuff going on. <laughs> the thing I'll always admire most, though, was Daniel showing up in a cheap military tunic we'd bought him uh, as himself 
yeah. from the story and being reverse Daniel Barker for the evening. Right, it was a, a, a night where somebody who doesn't really put himself forwards and into the spotlight, sometimes when he perhaps should put himself into the spotlight more, he's got a lot of talent and he's really good when he does. You kind of like forced him to be the centre of attention completely for the I mean, and there was, you know, it was an elaborate thing. You know, you had theatre pieces basically that you constructed it was a very strange like it was a strange thing as a as an audience member to be at because you didn't know what was going to happen next you know you had link ups over skype and stuff didn't you there was oh yeah skype the other recurring trope in the story yeah yeah I, i was really i'm so i'm just really relieved he enjoyed it because i did get a feeling of massive guilt towards the end that i'd basically hijacked a man's life for my own narcissistic glee and if he'd have gone along and felt awkward or had a bad time, it would have felt like a bit of a shit. So the fact he enjoyed himself was, was a big relief. Right. And there was a whole team of people who made that thing happen. I mean, that was, that was an interesting part of it in itself, was how this kind of absurd story was actually like connecting all of these people. A lot, some of them knew each other already, but, you know, there were definitely people who were at that party who just came because they they heard this you know the, the bat signal went out on twitter and they, they they come you know from different places they had no relation to daniel at all they didn't really know what was going on and a lot of them which is really sweet actually there's there's some friendship groups that have come together because of it oh, which wow. is quite nice and yeah i've seen sort of things online where people who've been having like a really rough time have sort of been supported by people they met through that and sort of obviously clearly quite good friends still so it's quite sweet really right and and you even had like a band. The band that played was not somebody that you guys knew either. Like that was so, like there was somebody who came through the through the narrative. Right? Yeah, that that was Hannah, who was just someone who just got into the tweets and was enjoying it. But it turns out she's a violinist in a prog band. I hope she'll forgive me for calling them a prog band because I'm not great with musical genre. And that's <laughs> I, I went to a gig of theirs actually, which she was involved in sort of some of the stuff leading up to the party and I really wanted to go and see her play and met her there and, and that was really weird as well because we'd only talked sort of about Daniel Barker's birthday and then I was seeing her perform live music and it was really cool. Right, I mean, and that's, some, that's a strange thing for you, I guess, as well because your Twitter persona, as we kind of mentioned at the beginning, is is not you fully. Like, it's it, it, it's disguised, it's, an, it's relatively anonymous. Like Daniel Barker the whole narrative you made around Daniel Barker, that's the kind of tweets that you do anyway. It's just, it was like a development of the kinds of tweets that you do. Like you've got lots of different strands in your tweets of different funny, clever stories, but that was like the most epic version I've seen. My friend um, Guy, uh, who's brain mage on Twitter, um, when he, he convinced me to join it in, I think, 2012, and he said it's basically like a hole you can bark in. That's very much describes his Twitter feed. Yeah, it's, yeah that is... That yeah, is it's I learned from a master on that. Um, but yeah, that, that's what it is. I mean, a lot of people have said, actually, a lot of my jokes on Twitter are like really dark, and I, 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 don't, I don't like to do tasteless things. But I suppose, you know, quite a lot of them are about things like, you know having a knife fight with a chimp or, or something, yeah. you know, viscerally unpleasant like that. And I suppose it, it's, yeah, it's it's a bit of an outlet for, you know, I, I tweet more when I'm at work than when right. I'm relaxing, for example. Right. I think it's a bit like smoking, really. It's just a way of coping with stress. Yeah, but, no, sure. I mean, and, and I definitely, when I, had a, when I had a day job, I tweeted a lot more than I do now. I'm freelance and could do it all the time. 
but yeah, so that I mean that that sort of like leads us towards the second question I ask everybody, which is what do you do now? Okay, so I am I'm an editor for some magazines and the fact I'm speaking really haltingly makes it sound like they're dirty magazines. <laughs> they're not in the conventional sense of the word. They are, however, about financial services, so your mileage may vary. Yeah. People always ask, Oh, what do you publish? Is it exciting? And it's it's not it's not the FT or anything, it's it's some really hardcore trade journals about financial services. So yeah, another reason my Twitter isn't much about what I do during the day. Although a common staple for me is when I'm on long conference calls where I'm not required to take any notes, I will often draw grotesque caricatures of businessmen and tweet them. So I suppose that is where my, my real and fake lives coincide most. <laughs> right. And so, yeah, so, right, so you're editing financial stuff. Did you get that job because of the editing side rather than the financial stuff? Uh, neither, really. Um, <laughs> I was never interested in business or economics or, or anything. If, in fact, if you'd have asked me when I was 17 what I found least interesting, you probably would have got that as the answer. But I'd been teaching for a while after coming out of uni and I had done a bit of freelance journalism with student papers and stuff like that and someone I knew needed some freelance doing so I went into their company to do a bit yeah they lost a reporter while I was there and the teaching thing wasn't exactly a laugh so I said I'll give it a go and sort of figured out what the world of finance was all about and I can't say it ever really enchanted me on a deep level but you know as a as an intellectual challenge like can you work out how this incomprehensible nightmare of numbers and jargon works yeah, it had its moments. So that was 2008. And that's how I got here, really. Right. And like you, you said, you you you, t- you were teaching beforehand. I know from off mic beforehand, uh, before we started recording, that it was in a secondary school, right? Yeah. So my mum and dad were both teachers. Right. And growing up, they said, whatever you do, don't become a teacher. It's shit. Right. Um, and it's really stressful. And for God's sake, don't do it. So... Immediately out of uni, I got a job as a teaching assistant, um, which, yeah, well, because, you know, you, all you need is a degree to do it, and they're yeah. kind of in short supply. And well, my partner's a teaching assistant. She's been a really? teaching assistant for years and years. Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. It was, what I signed on for is, it was one of the new city academies, um, or, the, well, the academies, but it was one of the first ones, and it was... I think they were calling them City Academies. I'm not sure of the nomenclature, but initially I was meant to be doing one-on-one support work with uh, autistic kids, Right. which my mum had worked with autistic kids loads over her career, and I thought that sounded really rewarding. So that was pretty good. It was it's quite a difficult and weird job at times, but it was okay. It was good, actually. It was very fulfilling at times. But um, the thing about teaching assistants is they can also be used as cover supervisors, which is taking lessons when teachers are off. Right. And the school I was at absolutely beasted us to cover as many lessons as we could. And there were quite a lot of teachers off quite a lot of the time, sometimes with stress-related stuff, so you can imagine what those classes were like to take on. Right. And so during my second year, the job sort of morphed into just basically having to confront classes of, like, 15 year olds on the brink of total savagery and it was less about sort of education and nurturing and more about developing really frightening ways to look at people it all become a bit confrontational and was making me feel horrendous outside work so 
hey, say what you will about bankers, but they're a fucking pleasure to interact with in comparison. So financial services was, yeah, was an easy jump to make. Right. I mean, a lot of my family are teachers, so I've always wanted to avoid teaching. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, Jen, my partner, is a teaching assistant in primary school, and I think that's a, a very different kettle of fish. I Some think. days I think I'd like to go back to it, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a, I think it's a fulfilling job in some ways, but I think what you're saying about how you don't have control over what then happens to you is, not, is a bit of an issue. And I think it's interesting how much teaching teaching assistants do yeah. without the money. Yeah. That's the thing. Uh, I think that's an interesting kind of way that things have gone. So, yeah. Well, it's a bit of a dark bargain, really, because you start on a pretty decent salary, actually. Coming out of uni, it was like, I forget what it was, but it seemed like sort of millionaire money at the time. <laughs> and, you know, I could rent a place and like go out for meals sometimes. And, you know, it seemed like yeah. a really good deal. But then when I was sort of monstering God knows how many lessons a week and, yeah, as you say, it, the, the, the equilibrium right. shifted, yeah. And I think I think they pay a bit more in secondary school, I, I imagine. Although London prices are so different now that, like, I don't know, maybe maybe Gen Z is getting paid a similar amount to you. It's just, it's just it isn't enough to rent. Like, oh, yeah, oh, I'm God knows now. what the situation's like yeah. now, 10 years on. Right. And so, yeah, no idea. Like, what did you study then going into that? Like, what was your degree in? Oh, this would t- takes a little bit of explaining as well. Um... <laughs> That's handy. So I studied biology and chemistry and English literature at A-level and then went to uni to study English literature at first. But basically I was shit. And after two years, like, well, I, was, I, I wasn't shit, but I was not working hard enough and I didn't kind of, this could make sound like a bell end, but I didn't really agree with their definition of literature because basically I like to read pulp and there's only so much I can venerate Shakespeare. Brilliant playwright, right, but right. I mean, you know, I needed, yeah, I didn't quite walk the walk. So after two years, I said to them, you know, I'm, look, I don't think I'm quite into this. Could we look at me changing something else? So I actually moved to, well, to natural sciences, but study history of science. And so my third year, which I loved, was history of science. And so my big thing was sort of natural history, culture of the 19th century. And yeah, if you really want to get bored, I can go on on it. No, I'm, uh, I'm not bored. Uh, so my dissertation <laughs> was about the the invention of the glass aquarium and what that did to Victorian culture and literature. I'll leave that there for now, but it was pretty cool because right. I got to... I still really like writing, or rather I like studying writing, uh, but it was rather than writing about the social affairs of another century, which, you know, to my credit or my detriment, I'm not that interested in, I was reading about social changes brought on by scientific change, which I was really into. Yeah, so I got to go back to the biology and, well, particularly the zoology, um, which I'm really passionate about, um, but do it with the skill set I'd sort of built up, because um, never would have made a scientist. I'm a shit mathematician and I've got no patience, so... Right. Yeah, it was a nice outcome, but in the end, I, I graduated with having done two-thirds of my time studying literature. I technically had a degree in science, but actually spent the last year studying history... So that is an interesting combination. There is your archetypical Mickey Mouse degree. Right. I mean, it's in, that, that is interesting, though. I mean, because like it explains a lot, like some of the strands in the Daniel Barker saga kind of like come out of that sort of stuff, like the zoology elements and the history elements, I'm sure. But also, I mean, what you were saying about how you're interested in pulp and that's it's pulp, pulp is part of it. I, I get the feeling that it's also that you're interested in you know, TV shows and computer games and uh, c- 
comic books. Would I be right in that? Or yeah, that, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so that, that kind of, I mean, I wouldn't even call that pulp. I just, it's just a different, it's just a different mediums that people don't take as seriously yet. Well, it's weird. I actually had a conversation at a party on Saturday about, someone was talking about Pedido Street Station by China Mayville. Plug, great book. Um, he's one of my favourite authors, full stop. Um, and I said, it is one of the best genre books out there. And I said, well, what's a genre book? And we got into a really messy conversation about what's, literature and what's not literature and it yeah a lot of what i spent the first two years at uni discussing basically but i think there is still everyone knows there's a difference between what's highbrow and what's lowbrow and lowbrow stuff can be brilliant and artistic and you know utterly captivating intellectually but it ain't dickens so yeah i, I would still say i'm into pulp even though a lot of it i think is incredibly accomplished yeah, although Dickens is kind of pulp. Well, yeah, I mean, that. like I said, I, I don't actually have a literature degree. I've never <laughs> made it that far, so I, I'm really not qualified to comment. I, mean, I don't have a literature degree. I, I, don't, I have a degree in theatre and, and creative writing. But Where did you study? I studied in Lancaster. Oh, cool. I didn't know they, they did creative writing there. Yeah, they do. I nearly went to UEA to study that. Oh, uh, right, the creative writing degree. They, they, I thought about that a lot. Yeah, they... They accepted me and I didn't go for it. And for a, for a couple of years, that was a massive regret, actually, because I think that would have been really fun. Well, it seems like, you know, writing is your thing. Just to tie up the thing on Dickens, all I meant by that is that, you know, when he came out, he was coming out in periodicals. It was what people, the people were reading. Um, You're totally right. It was populist, yeah. But, but I mean, I agree, though, that, that I find Dickens hard to read sometimes. And it's definitely looked on by by culture as highbrow. Um, so, you know, you're not wrong to, to put it in highbrow either. So writing seems to be a, a thing that you do, right? Love it, yeah. When did you start doing that? Um, always, really. Uh, I, I used to love writing stories as a kid. I used to write long stories about, I used to have massive long dreams as a kid. And I used to write stories about them and illustrate them and I still still remember a lot of them today, actually, because I like I wrote the stories for myself, so I've still got a really strong memory of like some dreams I had as a kid. I don't know how many of the images now or what I actually dreamt or just what I remember writing about, but I, yeah, I, I kept that up. I had a go at writing a massively pretentious sci-fi novel when I was about thirteen. Actually, I lie. When I was eleven, I started writing a Star Wars book, which is. It's gruesome. Um, somewhere in my parents' attic, there's a notebook with about like 120 pages of 11-year-old Star Wars fan fiction in. And this is the first time I've admitted that to anyone. <laughs> Actually, talk about vulnerability. Ex- exclusive. Yeah, so... Um, but yeah, then I had to go a pretentious sci-fi book when I was 13, and as every teenager does, got into poetry. And then at uni, I started writing another book, but didn't really finish it for 10 years it's it's, it's still I've I've got half of it lying around I've got to say actually Twitter's been really good because I've I've started sort of shitting out a lot of microfiction on there Um, I've done some funny things and then Daniel Barker's birthday became a sort of a a, a semi-serious thing and yeah it's, it's been good it's been good yeah I mean that was the interesting thing you had that going for so long that it had to it had to develop some serious strands or some like some emotional strands or whatever like some dramatic strands within it to make to, to keep you interested i guess as much as the, the the audience following it 
but I mean, it, it, and I think it's a very good showcase for potentially what like what 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 writing from you could be. So I, th- I imagine it's it's been quite good for that, like having getting feedback from people. That's what as a writer I find you spend a lot of time writing a thing and then it's really hard to get people to read it and then you know you don't get very much feedback it's been awesome because like a lot of people were saying when it came out and it did the buzzfeed and everything and people were saying someone give them a book deal which is really nice because i've basically like, i've always really liked writing but i never thought of myself as a writer you know like people say like oh you know you're a writer when you write every day and stuff i've never written every day i've got i've got a shit attention span and i don't write like read books about the theory of writing and stuff and like I said I've never actually managed to finish a book and I thought I am never going to go through all the misery of trying to find a publisher and stuff and thought well okay that's fair enough you're not driven that's that's not a thing the the irony of, of it is can I plug now yeah yeah so I got a book deal out of, uh, of the Daniel thing and yeah I, do a pub- I can't it's not much of a plug because I can't actually say what it's about or when it's coming out or anything but a publisher contacted me and asked me to write a manuscript so that would be weird so you haven't written it yet? I have. I'm actually 20,000 words through. Right. And actually talking with you tonight is a, a great reason for me to procrastinate for an evening. <laughs> so <laughs> delighted to be here. Right. And I guess, so you, I guess you're sort of like, you've made yourself into a situation where you have to finish the book. I think that's always the good, the good, the good situation to be in. Like, that's the thing that can, can fight off procrastination, even if people do come around your house and record conversations with you yeah it's 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 amazing how much your supposed lack of work ethic evaporates when someone's actually interested in doing something with what you write right I, I thought I was just really lazy and slack and unmotivated but it actually turns out I can I can get a few words out when I know someone wants to publish it so right I mean and that's the thing like I think people sometimes think of it just as like yeah you have to have determination and I think that's probably generally true in the arts like most people will be rejected lots and lots and so you have to have resilience against that and you have to keep writing anyway or whatever and so there's some truth behind that there's loads of truth behind it yeah but at the same time i think it's easy to think well people who give up aren't committed enough but actually there's a lot of other factors to whether you are enjoying writing and some writers write for an audience and some writers write for themselves and i i'm an audience writer i like that's why I perform. I like to do stuff that is interactive where I get feedback. Yeah. And so when you're not getting any feedback, it's very hard to carry on if that's the, the way, the reason and what that you make the work you're making. And so it sounds like you had that experience of getting feedback, like partly through Twitter generally, but also specifically through Daniel Barker's birthday. Well, yeah, I guess it was a bit like, um, you know, the classic sort of rat in a lab like hitting a button and getting some cheese as a result and getting a tiny little dopamine hit. Right. It was like that. Like every time I tweeted something, someone's like, oh yeah, that's funny. Yeah, and you know, but base as that may be, that's a hell of a motivation. And yeah, I mean, you, you heard me talking about like pulp and stuff a minute ago. Like there was always, it. I think, yeah, at the end of the day, I'm just going to write genre shit. So, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to really get into yourself doing that. But if you've actually already got people saying, yeah, this is fun, carry on, it's suddenly relaxing. But that stuff is serious as well. I mean, it's important, at least. And, like, this definition between pulp and, uh, and, and high art or whatever is something that always bugs me, the idea that they're, they're separate. And, and it is kind of... I know why people have it, and I, I get that there are different experiences that you have with different kinds of art. But, I mean, I don't like... You know, I, I basically, you know... 
self-deprecation's okay, but when you're when you're being self-deprecating for an entire genre, then that's that's more like yeah. Then you're accidentally shitting on a lot right, of other people, exactly. For which I apologize. Yeah, well, exactly. It's a natural, but it's a natural instinct. I have that too. I, I like play down things I do, and it's the same with Twitter as well. That's a serious thing, I think. But yeah. we all play that down because, of course, we do because it's it seems ridiculous. To it's go just on words it. on the internet, right? Yeah. Right. So this book deal that you've got is under a different name from even the name that I've addressed you at today, right? Yeah, it is, yeah. Again, though, it's got a similar cadence, so... Yeah, so you're kind of picking up pseudonyms as you as you go through life now. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> Do you relate differently to those different names, or are they just... They all feel like you? It's weird, actually. A really good old friend of mine, he's... For the last two years, been making an animated series, and uh, I've written it, and he's an animator, and so we've been doing it. And a couple of weeks ago, because I chose a pseudonym to publish under, the marketing brain in me said, "This is repulsive, really." I said, "Can you change my name on the credits of it?" So it's the same name as I'm publishing under, which is weird because I'm now, I suppose, I've got this conscious idea that, like, because if I'm doing sort of animated series and sort of books about whatever and (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I probably don't want it appearing on the same Google search as like a really serious article on securitization. So right, it's it's just fear and embarrassment, sense. really. That makes sense, though. Separating those two kind of worlds makes a lot of sense because they haven't got any crossover in interest. But it definitely makes sense to be changing that animation name because because yeah, I mean that's not that's not like the bad kind of marketing brain. That's just yeah. that's just sensible. Like helping people find your stuff is not. I can't have too many names. Yeah, yeah. it's not manipulative. <laughs> it's just sensible. It sounds like they're not really particularly like. You don't feel like you're different people with those names. They're just names that you come up with spur of the moment that now you're kind of saddled with that happen to have been better names than the one that I gave for my Twitter handle, which I'm saddled with. A goose fat? Yeah, goose fat. One, How did that one. come about? I'm there's ask no you that. good story. It's rubbish. Like, there's no good story behind it. Just one day, I like was grasping for words. Are you really good at roasting potatoes? Well, no. I mean, it's because, I mean, that's the worst thing. It's not even that there's no good story. It's an embarrassing story. Oh, but, we'll leave it at that. Well, no, it's it's all right. It's out there in the interview. <laughs> Helen Zaltzman asked it me in, a, in, a, in an interview, so it, was, it had to go out. Um, <laughs> but it's because... Me and my partner have pet names for each other, and mine's Goose, right? So then I just was struggling for a, a handle one day, and I got that. Out, Sounds legit. Out of the ether. Yeah, it's and it's rubbish, and it's and I I kind of keep it to punish myself for making that mistake. <laughs> like I'm I'm very much a, like like have my flaws out on the internet for people to see years after I I I uh, have thought better of them. Although that's a, that's a nice. That's a nice theory for a young person. I find as I get older, I do at least remove some of the worst offenders from the past in, on the internet. Yeah, well, we, that's interesting, isn't it? I can definitely look back on like forums I've been on and stuff and stuff I read that I've posted in like 2002 and I just think... That makes you sound vile. Right, right. Like... Well, Time Hop just does that to me. Like, oh. Time Hop just seems to be a way of reminding me how terrible I was five years ago. Yeah, and I don't mean like, <laughs> oh, you know, you sounded you sounded embarrassing or whatever, but yeah, like, you no, actually I mean say vile. things yeah, and you're yeah, like, yeah, yeah, that was a really sick joke you made. Yeah. 
like stuff you would not consider and I suppose in a way it's really grim because you think oh is that me yeah. in some ways you think oh well at least I've learned I've to be less of an arsehole as I've got yeah, older right. yeah that is a persistent anxiety for me about the internet is that you know you, you, you live and die by what you've you've said so yeah. and people change and our out- outlooks change and you know you don't think very much before you put something out online generally as a rule so thank god for pseudonyms yeah you're 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 (laughs) all right you're all right (laughs) you said earlier on that you were very interested in in that like aquarium stuff what about that was interesting like what was the what was what what was that for you what was the story there oh i mean i've um I've always been absolutely, you could find a million people within a square mile of here that will say this, but I've always been obsessed with animals, like properly obsessed with animals. And especially the way people think about them and react to them. And I don't mean that in a high-minded way, just the, the fascination people have with with animals, the way other people like me are interested in them. And, I mean, I've, I've worked at London Aquarium for a while. At the weekends when I was teaching, I volunteered at London Zoo. My first ever job, I worked in the aquatic section of a pet shop something about aquatic animals behind glass utterly fascinates me a lot of my earliest memories actually are of animals in zoos and in uh, fish and aquariums in fact at home as well one of the earliest things i remember is we had we had a fish tank in the landing outside my bedroom and we had a tench in it and we had three goldfish called horace doris and morris (laughs) And the tench, can I divert, how are we doing for time? Can I tell you a little bit about this tench? Yes, you can, you totally can. It's, um, this is one of my least plucked anecdotes, quite a good one. So we had this tench, and my dad is a massively keen fisherman. So, actually the fact I'm massively into fish seems less and less surprising the further (laughs) I go on with this. So I used to go out to the river with him and watch him catch stuff, and I don't know if you've heard of a tench, but it's, you know, a fish about so long, my hands are about... 20 inches apart just now and it's very slimy fish but it's very beautiful it's lovely brown color it's called the doctor fish isaac what's his name in the uh, famous 17 uh, isaac walton in the complete uh, angler published in the 17th century called right. it the doctor fish i think i think okay. it was him i mean i don't know that like i was like i was like this must be a reference i should get and then it isn't yeah, one you wouldn't actually i, I was, love I was, shitting yeah, out trivia yeah yeah, yeah. that's good info good, good info <laughs> So it's a really slimy fish and supposedly it heals other fish by contact with its slime. Total folklore nonsense, but it became known as the Doctor Fish. Anyway, we had one and uh, they bought it when I was really, really small. And they lived to about 17 years old, generally. So when it got too big for the fish tank, it went in the pond outside the house that I watched my dad dig when I was about 10. And then when my parents retired and they went to move uh, to Norfolk when I was in the middle of my 20s, actually my late 20s, they, right before that, their pond sprung a leak and I went to help them dig out all the mud. And we found at the bottom, uh, all the mud, you know, that all the water had gone out and there was the mud and all these dead fish, really upsetting. And I found the tench in the mud still alive. We thought it had been dead for years and it was as old as me, so it's kind of special. Put it in a barrel of water and it did quite well and it lived in that barrel because they knew they were going to be moving soon didn't refill the pond it lived in that barrel and then when they did move we went and took it down to a local pond and let it free wow. with we also bought it was a lady we bought a male tench as well just in case they wanted to have kids so lovely story about a tench nice anyway yeah. that's how much i care about fish yeah. love them 
I mean, I guess it's it's a complicated thing, zoos though now. Yes. Like growing up, and I, I, you know, I loved zoos, and I still do love zoos. I mean, I like animals, right? It's not not necessarily as much as you, but certainly quite to quite an extent. And it becomes a kind of like different thing when you realise that there's kind of more complicated ethics around that sort of stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've. I've read quite a lot about the history of zoos. I know there is some pretty serious ethical questions there. I think a lot of it depends on the attitude of the zoo and a lot of it depends on the kind of animal. So if you look at London Zoo now, for example, they move the elephants out to Whipsnade, they move the rhinos out there. And if you, for example, looking at London Zoo's big flagship exhibition this summer, it's spiders. You don't need a lot of room to keep spiders. Right. They've been trapped on a little bit of land in Regent's Park for ages, and they've realised big animals in confined spaces isn't cool. So it's all about, this is directly reiterating uh, what I was trained to say when I when I volunteered there, um, but it's all about sort of intimate encounters with smaller animals. I think, yeah, you really need a huge amount of space to look after a large animal. Right, probably. wildlife parks are much better for that They're sort great. of stuff. I mean, I, and I really enjoy those experiences. First time me and my partner went to Amsterdam together we went to the to Amsterdam Zoo and we're like we were excited to go and it was good but then like we suddenly like saw the animals in like less like we didn't necessarily feel like they were as happy as we were you know do you know what I mean you suddenly realize that yeah confined spaces are complicated this is the other side of the coin and I can't pretend that some of my interest in you know the husbandry of animals doesn't come from you know, the inherent tragedy of, of when it goes wrong and the history of aquariums certainly is, is full of that. I mean, I make no secret, I actually have recurring nightmares about aquariums that have gone wrong. It really distresses me. But it's it's, it's part of the whole thing, I suppose. You know, there's, there's an essential hubris in trying to keep anything alive, particularly something that lives in so complex a chemical environment as an enclosed body of water, you know, for... for uh, for human consumption well not literal consumption but you know viewing yeah. so sometimes some of the the drama of of that whole business is as the fact it can go so badly wrong and it gets it's really sad i mean one of the most fascinating things i've ever seen is the the national aquarium in atlanta georgia where they've got well they had six whale sharks i don't know how many they've got at the moment in a, a tank the size of an american football field and they've had some, some well-publicised fatalities over the years because no one really knows much about the biology of whale sharks, let alone how to keep one alive in an aquarium. And yet they decided they were going to have six. And that's Icarus-scale hubris. <laughs> uh, but it's amazing to see when you're standing in a perspex tunnel in a huge volume of water looking up at an animal the size of a bus swimming over you. It's a, a pretty impressive achievement and made all the more so for how foolhardy it is. And that's... You know, not to condone it, but it's it's certainly fascinating. I, I really like it when you're in a tunnel with fish going above your head and around and like on the side. Like I can get really into those kind of aquariums. Uh, I went to an aquarium the beginning of this year. We went to where did we go? South End, and uh, it was bleak as fuck. South End itself was bleak. Like we, we it was like the first day of the year, and we were like we were like let's go on an adventure and then it wasn't an event like it was like it was like, it was like oh god everything's depressing but then the, that was the that was the moment like that made it go go right was going to the oh sea, really going to the sea life center because i heard that's a pretty grim sea life well, it center. might be grim but like if you it, it depends what you've 
yeah, it depends what you... If your day's been really shit up to that point, then being in a tunnel with uh, fish above your head is, is suddenly a much a, a nice thing that changes that. Actually, I can simply that me and my parents decided it'd be nice to have a day out on Ipswich earlier in the year. <laughs> Never again. Right, right. It was that kind of a thing. Well, we, it's, it's sometimes it's tempting to just think if you go to somewhere where there's the sea, that'll be enough. Um, <laughs> but, it's, but it's not always the case. Would you mind? I'm just going to check on the casserole. Yeah, you should do. You should do. That's good. I'm uh, cooking a casserole. Smells all right. It does smell really good, actually. So we're doing... Oh, hello. Oh, that looks very good. Yeah, that's doing good. We'll put that in there a little longer. The tomatoes are staying together nicely too. Right, and cooking, you said earlier on that cooking is kind of like the best way to get better acquainted with you is to be in a situation where you're cooking because cooking is a big part of your life. I love cooking, yeah. Um, I'm a very imprecise cook. I can't bake at all. I tried to make bread once from first principles. The deal was I couldn't look up the recipe of bread. What what came out was a really large, angry scone. Um, <laughs> but I can make soups. I can make casseroles. You know, I'm... I'm Again, ethically complex area, but I love meat. Um, <laughs> right, you, lo- you love animals and you love meat. It's, I'm very similar to that. It's a strange dichotomy, but it can totally to- co- coexist, right? Yeah, and I, you know, I realise you've got to face these things head on. And one of the things I often do in the summer is is go fishing for eels with my dad, and then I'll, you know, I'll, I'll cut the heads off and put them in segments and grill them. And yeah, it's, it's a sting actually. You realise you've just murdered something, but. Yeah, it tastes really good. Right. And at least you haven't separated yourself from it by about seven layers of, of economic complexity. Right. So. It's much more ethical to kill a fish yourself than to get it factory farmed or whatever. I don't know if it's more ethical, but it's more <laughs> it's more responsible at least. And, you know, I, I wish I was forced into the situation of having to kill everything I ate. Not because I've got any pleasure in killing things, but because then... You know, there'd be a responsibility in it. And yeah, to be honest, I'd probably eat a lot healthier because I couldn't deal with like battering eight mammals to death every week. You know, well, you'd you really think about there's it. There's a certain amount of skill involved in hunting as well that I don't feel I've got. It's, it's, a, it's a strange thing, but I don't really have a problem with the idea of killing animals. As long as, you, as long as it's a responsible thing. I think if you're killing an animal to eat that animal or if you're killing that animal for its own uh, pain relief or whatever, mm. um, I think that... I haven't really got a problem with that, but I think I just wouldn't be very good at hunting. Like I just wouldn't. I haven't got the coordination to actually do it well. Like that's the thing. If, it, oh, if I'm yeah. going to kill an animal, I want to do it cleanly and well. I wouldn't know where to start with hunting. I mean, a right. lot of blokes right. really have this big thing about you know hunting. Oh, wouldn't it be good to go out and unless you've been brought up knowing how to do that, it's bloody impossible. I mean, I'm I'm an amateur fisherman at best. Yeah. You know, even if I lived right by a, a river, I would really doubt I'd be able to catch enough to, to give me something to eat every night. Um, so it's a difficult business, but so yeah, something between how hard it is and what a challenge it is morally would probably mean we'd all eat less meat if, if we had to deal with it ourselves. Yeah, no, that's, that's probably very true. But cooking is something that you like to do. Love it, yeah. I was watching you sort of like put the different ingredients earlier on and it did remind me of 
in a weird way of like the way that you are with words like you're quite sensory with your words that's nice you'd say yeah even though that you're you're sort of being sensory around either silly things or um genre things that's one of the things i think makes those those things stand out visceral i I think visceral visceral is one of my favorite adjectives i love it that i would use to describe (laughs) a lot of your tweets yeah Yeah. no i mean I, i i like I say, I cook entirely by intuition. I never measure things. That is the thing a lot of shit cooks say to excuse the excess of their shit cooking. But no, it, you, you know, after a while you just get a lovely intuition for what oil will do to something and how soft a carrot's going to go and how much of the flavour of a bone is going to come out in some water. And yeah, it's, it's chemistry for the impatient. Right, I was going to say, you were putting a lot of thought into the actual ingredients and the combination and stuff like that so I guess it is kind of chemistry but I, but it definitely felt like yeah I mean when if someone says like oh I don't I don't ever think about what I'm doing or whatever that can be a red flag but the, <laughs> but those people don't normally like spend the, their time like feeding the tomatoes and like sensing the the actual the ripeness and all of that stuff of all of the different ingredients like that that I, I i haven't eaten your food yet so i maybe shouldn't rave yeah. too much. but i i've got good i've got good good expectations based on the smell and watching you prepare it yeah, yeah it should be nice it's uh it's looking nice and bubbly it's uh for the record i'm doing whatever you call them the big greek beans and some some nice really ripe tomatoes uh, a bit of chicken thigh a few prawns yeah a bit of chorizo yeah it should be pretty pretty there, simple there is a lot of different flavors in there and it's going to be good and a half bottle of white wine as well which is like the secret to most good casseroles actually yeah never go wrong with half a bottle of white wine right i mean definitely booze in food is always good the aquarium thing you know you you studied the history of that for Mm. that year i mean did you say victorian as well or yeah i made that up yeah i mean that's sort of that's an interesting i mean does is is that like does it seem to like go i guess it seems I don't know how I'm phrasing this, but that speaks to me of steampunk, right? The idea of Victorian aquariums and stuff like that. I fucking loved steampunk before there was a name for it. Right. Since there's been a name for it, I've been a bit embarrassed to say that. Right. But I feel similarly, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I, I don't really want to stick a load of cogs to a top hat, thanks. Right, and it um, became a bit too much. Like, I know, no, no, you know, I'm, people loving anything is great, and I'm not judging anyone for loving stuff. But for, for me, it just became a bit too much of a gimmick. Like, it was like, people are using the word steampunk without there being any any anything substance behind it. Which was yeah. like, this is steampunk. This is ste-. And it just became really, like, meme I guess. It vaguely has to do with old technology and there's brass involved. Right. It's steampunk, yeah. But I do like stuff that's... I mean, like, his dark materials, I think you could say, is steampunk. Yeah. And then there's a lot of, like... Yeah, a lot of, like, Studio G- Gilliby uh, animation stuff that's, like... I don't know if I've pronounced that right, which is... It's terrible. a tough one. Well, I should pronounce it right because I studied Japanese and went to Japan, really? but I didn't learn anything. And that's <laughs> the problem. Um, yeah, because you can get by with just speaking English. That's the problem. Anywhere in the world, that's the problem. It's a bit of a kind of, it's not exactly a problem, I guess, for me, in that I could still communicate, but I feel like it is a problem for me because I've, I've not learned languages because I could be lazy. Yeah, it's a bit of a, I'm shit at languages. <laughs> uh, can't do it. 
Apart from German, a bit. Love German. Yeah, the grammar never sticks to me. The reason I was picking out sort of steampunk or trying to like get to, towards that word for some reason is that it just, I guess, was it your imagination, I guess, being fired suddenly by the idea of these Victorian aquariums in a way that this high art literature stuff had not done up to that point? That's probably not a bad diagnosis, actually. Um, <laughs> one I hadn't arrived to myself, but I'll take it, actually. I mean, when I was... So, again, saying I was into it before it was a thing, which is, wow, that's the the quintessential hipster attitude towards anything, but I'm going to run with it. When I was 13, I used to spend, uh, I used to go on caravanning holidays with my parents. Cool guy. (laughs) And I used to draw, spend, like, days drawing enormous sort of perpendicular gothic spacecraft run on steam engines. And I didn't, I did not know this was going to be what every dork in the world was doing in 10 years' time. But that was, I just really, uh, I got really into gothic revival architecture, right. which makes me like the coolest teenager ever. <laughs> and I really like sci-fi. And I used to like sort of Warhammer 40k stuff at the time, which is mega lame tabletop gaming. When I was younger than that, probably, I was into Warhammer. Like, so this is, we're into serious, okay. like, beast okay. mode, embarrassing admissions here, yeah. but... Yeah. And they had these sort of gothic spaceships. I used to go to like you know steam engine museums and get well excited and stuff like that. And yeah, I, mean, I suppose it was the proliferation of technology before anyone really had an idea of what to do with it. Yeah. And before, and there was some point in the twentieth century really when things got too dark to handle. You know, it's 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 a very different period in the history of science, but. If you ignore the sort of the monstrous horror of colonialism, yeah. the the second half of the nineteenth century is full of sort of unbridled optimism and wonder. You know, sort of industrial capacity increasing far beyond anyone's ability to know what to do with it. And that's right. quite a nice sort of mindset. So yeah, the aquarium thing kind of plays into that. If you look at, I mean, the repeal of the glass tax is what led to the boom in home aquaria and also to the great exhibition in Crystal Palace right. and the concrete dinosaurs and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right, right. So it's a beautiful period. Yeah, I mean, those dinosaurs are cool. And then the, I've got, yeah, I really want to write like something about those dinosaurs in Crystal Palace, like a kid's thing about them coming alive. Like, like I'd be really interested yeah, in that. That's cool. That'd be really cool. But, um, but yeah, and I guess that's the thing as well with that kind of period of time, that was when a lot of science fiction's roots were happening anyway, yeah. right? It's like, Jules Verne and all sorts of stuff. HG like Wells, right, yeah. HG Wells, right. I mean, and, and, and so I guess that that stuff has had a big influence on the science fiction that we have now, whether it's whether it's steampunk or not, really. But that's interesting that those sort of things, yeah, that those those elements of what you're interested in sort of managed to finally find something that that fitted them after two years of literature. Because literature's right as well for you. Like, it makes sense because you're interested in, like, we've been talking basically about analysing words and ideas and all of that stuff. So that's definitely within the literature wheelhouse. And I love reading. I even like reading, like, serious books sometimes. (laughs) Well, I believe you. You (laughs) recommended some serious books. Uh, Yeah, that's probably a good point to mention, actually. The book I am writing, I'm probably safe to say, is about, uh, it's about whaling, uh, which is another great industry, uh, industry, another great interest of mine it's not a great industry i'll just make that clear for the right. record um <laughs> but yeah i mean for reasons that are probably clear already i'm really interested in the history of whaling because it's the nantucket era that spawned moby dick was a, a great explosion of, of human influence over an otherwise untouchable realm you know hey as i said earlier it came with great horror and horrible consequences 
Uh, but somewhere in the middle uh, of all of that, it's a, it's a beautiful bit of history to look at. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's it's easier to look at the, the, the dark and complicated stuff through the lens of history as well. Like, you know, when you're looking at these things, yes, they're a bit horrifying, but they're kind of very distantly horrifying in a different way to the to the to, to reality that's happening now. Yeah. yeah, that's true enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it seems like fish is fish have had a, an unusual influence on your life I guess that this but true then, to say but it, but it makes sense if your dad's a fisher a fisherman I was going to say fisher person but there's no you don't have to when they're, when they're, when, they're, when you know that they're male already um well I guess you do I mean I guess that's not exactly true if it's I was, like fishing yeah I mean yeah a fisher <laughs> why, why do we have to fisher folk. right yeah fisher folk that's good this is around about the time when I would ask the last question, which is, do you have anything to plug? And we've sort of like covered your plug a little bit earlier on and you can't really give them a, information about where to find it. Cause it's, I don't want to promote it so much. I mean, I'm more <laughs> mentioning because I'm well excited exactly. to be writing it. Right, right, right. It's just a bit of a treat at the moment. So yeah, in terms of plugging, probably uh, not, not much I do uh, other than say, uh, cause I mentioned him earlier. If you haven't read China Mayville, read him. I think his best book's Iron Council. No one agrees with me. Um, just start with Padilla Street Station, I guess. Uh, and <laughs> you mentioned Geese earlier, so I'm going to say the best guy on Twitter, Twitter's best kept secret, is at Gimzify, G-I-M-Z-I-F-Y. He only really tweets about geese and lager, um, but it's so much more beautiful than you could imagine he's that good. being. He's good. I, I, I enjoy his, his work on Twitter too. Yeah, He's a force of nature. And they can find you on, on Twitter too, right? Yes, at uh, Frog Croakley, F-R-O-G, uh, C-R-O-A-K-L-E-Y. Uh, and when I do publish, you'll be able to find me uh, as Nathan Crowley. So Crowley, like the ethically dubious magician, and Nathan, like the name. Right, so you're not, gonna, you're not worried about people knowing that Frog Croakley is Nathan? No, that's fine. Those two can be connected all they like. Right. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense as well, because, you know, Frog Croakley has done quite well. That was that, 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 that was where I got the job, yeah, so exactly. it's fine. You, you kind of have to link back. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you in your kitchen as the food cooks. It's, it's, been, a, it's, it's, a, it's been a delightfully sensory experience, I guess, for me, but people at home don't get to have the smells. It's smelling um, pretty good now. Unlucky. And, yeah, I mean, it's and there's been a sort of, like... A, a very small buzz, which hopefully people won't won't mind, but it was much stronger in the other room. So we've done the right thing here. And what's yeah. happened is, as the conversations happened as well, the the the, the fridge has started buzzing somewhere in the middle with a deeper th deeper buzz. But that's actually been good. Like that's taken the edge off the other buzz, I think. But listeners, you can decide for yourself how you feel about buzzes. Strange people context of magnetic fields. I mean, people are very fussy about audio, so I always feel that I need to at least acknowledge that. I know that they're fussy about audio, even as I keep on representing substandard audio, because I believe in, 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 in sound being a bit messier than we're used to. I think dealing with the, the realities of the life around us in a conversation... Well, my it, life is incredibly good. messy anyway, right. so... you never sit in a coffee shop 
with like perfect audio of the person you're talking to. You just have to deal with the, the background sound. But but we're not used to having to do that. We've been spoiled, and uh, <laughs> I feel like I feel like that's quite good. I, I think I think in future I want to hear more messy sound. I'm I'm getting to the point now where I'm becoming an advocate of messy sound. Well, in the other room you would have had sirens. So right. is that or the incessant buzzing of uh, ghost mosquitoes? Yeah, I mean. There definitely was a few years where I felt embarrassed about my messy sound. Really? Now I'm becoming like, yeah, it may be that I don't know how to record properly, but you know what? I'm learning how to record metally, and that's what I like. We love distortion on guitars. Right, so right, let's right. Let's have it on podcast too. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's, you know, it's it's never perfect. I, I like the sound of, of some things in the background more than others, but I like the fact that you just have to deal. This is a live moment. We capture it. Like the the alternative is we could unplug every single thing in your house, which we tried. We really did, um, and the TV stayed on even when yeah, we unplugged that it. That was that was spooky because it didn't have any power at all going into that. Sorry, I actually leaned in close to the yeah, mic there did. as if imparting something to a. a That's good. That's good. Yeah. That'll really that'll really piss someone off. That's yeah. always good. What I was that pumped about? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it will, it will piss someone off, but it'll also make someone feel really nice. You know, that's the thing. Every every time we have a complaint for something in the world, I always think it's, it's good to remember that probably someone else is really enjoying the exact thing that you hate. Maybe they're getting one of those AMSR or ASR. Yeah, well, that's, yeah. I found out about that. I want to. I've been so busy with other things. I want to write a blog about it. But somebody who has has that AMSR, or I'm probably saying it wrong, said to me that some of the ep- episodes do trigger that in him, and he really enjoys it. I'm stroking your ear with a ballpoint pen. You're having a very relaxing time. I'm now going to crinkle some foil. <laughs> right. Some people are hating that and some people are loving it. And that's the beauty of people. It's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you. The last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Thanks very much for tolerating me. Goodbye. <laughs> Bye, everybody. So the book that Frog was talking about in today's episode is now a reality. He's finished writing it. It now is there for you to purchase if you wish. It's called The Sea Hates a Coward, brackets, Tombs of the Dead. And it's by Nate Crowley, N-A-T-E, Crowley. So a shortening from Nathan. And it's available on Amazon as a Kindle ebook. Check it out, go and find it, have a read of it. Also, the food that was being prepared in the episode did indeed taste as good as it smelled. In fact, part of that meal was some kind of olives, green olives, and I really don't like olives normally, but the kind of green olives that Frog got were actually kind of nice, which is the first kind of green olives I've enjoyed. And also the background hum that you could hear during the episode may be better than I thought it was at the time because I've done some post-production work on it and tried to get rid of it. It may be there, it may not be. As I said at the end, messy sound is something that in many ways I'm a supporter of. I've got some shows coming up that I'd like to tell you about. There's Stand Up Tragedy Tragic Autumn, which is happening very soon on the 16th of October at the Hackney Attic. Doors open at 7.30. It's £5 in advance. 
seven pounds on the door tickets are available from the hackney attic website uh, it's got a really great lineup it's going to be a really good show and then there's my solo show what about the men mansplaining masculinity which i'm doing as a double bill with last week's guest aj mckenna on the 19th of november at the dog star in brixton and that night is going to be pay what you think that the shows are worth the doors open for that at 7 30 my show will be at eight o'clock and aj's will be at 9 15 if you've seen mine but you want to come and catch her show find out more about that stuff at www.standuptragedy.co.uk i'm on twitter at goosefat101 if you want to get in touch with me about those shows about anything that happens in the conversations or if you'd like to complain about the sound quality or indeed praise it i'm there at goosebat 101 and stand up tragedy is at stand up for tragedy and getting better acquainted is there at gba podcast you can find getting better acquainted and listen back to the previous episodes anywhere that podcasts go to congregate on the internet There's loads of other episodes, some amazing conversations, and I'd really love you to have a listen to them. And if you can spare any money, you'd like to donate some money to me making all of this free stuff, there's a donate button on the Standard Tragedy website or at www.mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk, which is the website of my solo show, but also of the survey of a thousand men that I did about masculinity when I was doing research for the show. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode and remember there are lots of ways to get better acquainted.